Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hints for Healing podcast, a podcast which tries to unpack the diverse pathways towards healing for young survivors of torture and trauma. Um, my name is Sean Nemorin. I am one of your hosts alongside Nicole, and I would like to start off with acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land in which I record this podcast from, so the Cabrigal people of the Darug Nation, and let me extend my respects to elders past, present, and to those emerging. And um, of course, my respects to any Aboriginal person who might be listening. And also, given the fact that many listeners simply hail from overseas, I wish to pay my respects to First Nations people across the world. Today's guest on Hints for Healing is Dr. Simon Rosenbaum. Simon is um, an associate professor in the School of Psychiatry at University of New South Wales in Sydney and, honorary, and is also an honorary fellow at the Black Dog Institute. He's an internationally recognized pioneer in his field whose research focuses on physical activity, mental illness, sports for development and global mental health. Simon has worked with a variety of groups including young people, veterans, emergency services workers, and of course, refugees. He has published over 180 peer-reviewed publications, including a textbook and a Lancet commission. He serves as an elected um, national director of Exercise and Sports Science Australia, the president-elect of the Australasian Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, and co-chair of the Olympic Refuge Foundation think tank on sports and humanitarian settings. Simon has led international research and capacity building projects, including working in the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh. On a personal level, Simon is a dear friend and we've become quite close over the years. Uh, we've worked on different trauma-related projects globally. And in fact, we've traveled across four continents through research and work related projects in looking at how physical activity can impact on mental health in context of displacement. Many evenings spent in heated discussion or just shooting the breeze. I really love this guy a lot and I do hope that you enjoy this talk. Thank you very much. It was interesting, you know, a few a few days ago, I was mentioning that, you know, we'd we'd been together, we'd worked together across four continents, and it, it's 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 somewhat hard to believe, right? Um, yeah, but we've it's been it's been quite an adventure, you could say, over the last years, and you know, I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, of course, I appreciate you, you know you coming in again today. Um, and may, maybe we can start off with. Um, you know, maybe you can say, you know, maybe in terms of how we came to know one another um, and maybe the place that you're at at the moment. And I know it's a big question, but, you know, we have a bit of time to chat about it. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how did we met? We Look, first of all, I need to thank you, Sean, because everything I'm doing now is actually the work I'm involved with is, is thanks to you and seeing you at that conference in Serbia. Um which I think was, it's a bit kind, mate. <laughs> no, it's actually not. So, I mean, look, it, it's quite funny. So, 
you know, I, I remember coming into uni one day and Ruth Wells, Dr. Ruth Wells was this new person who was sitting on the desk next to me. Mm. Um, and I remember meeting her and I think everyone that would meet Ruth would have the same experience. He was kind of drawn to her. Absolutely. And you just, you know, she's inspiring. She's excited. She's um, just full of potential and ideas. And we kind of got talking and then we had, we had a, we went for a coffee or lunch at the crepe place in, in Randwick. Mm-hmm. And we sort of spoke about this concept of like sport and whether it's you know, relevant in humanitarian context. And she was doing all her PhD work in with Syrian communities in Jordan. And, and that was really what kind of sparked the interest for me. And then thanks to Zach, um, Professor Zach Steele, who was our kind of the chair of the department, he suggested attending the conference in Serbia. And that was where I met you. So I, you know, went to this trauma and torture conference in, in Serbia. And that would have been, was it 2018 that we met? No, it was actually, I think it was, was it the end of 2016? Oh, or Okay. Either 2016 or 2017. Yeah, I think maybe 2017. Yeah. Um, and so we went to that conference. And then from that conference, Ruth and I went on to Gaziantep in, in Turkey. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it was at that conference that I met you and I remember there were these, um, I mean, you were like a, a rock star at the conference. So it was, I was sort of following you around, but you were presenting and you had talked about, you know, you talked about football and sort of, you know, I heard you sort of talk about that and my ears kind of pricked up and I remember seeing those photos that were being, um, they were being presented in the, at the conference. And I don't know if some of them, some of them were yours, weren't they? From yeah. Yeah, so th- these were previous photos that, that that I'd taken sort of in, you know, in humanitarian context and maybe specifically in the Rohingya refugee um, camps in Cox Bazaar. And, you know, they, they depict a, a situation where you have, you know, 30,000 people descending upon the local brick field. And these are all um, people from the, the refugee camps. And this is all community initiated, you know, initiated. Um, you know, all on, on the backs of their own endeavours and the teams that were playing were, you know, from the local refugee communities and the, the local host communities. And it always, it always made me so amazed um, in terms of, you know, what, what, what communities can, you know, c- can do based on their own endeavours, right? And then, you know, I, I was thinking that within the context of, you know, growing up and, and looking and, and, you know, observing professional sport and, you know, thousands of people who descend upon the, the you know, the stadiums there. So I guess I, I wanted to put that up and show, you know, football within the context of community development. And I was giving an example from the, the Rohingya refugee camps in Cox Bazaar. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you though how much of an impact those photos have had on, on my career. I mean, because essentially it was those photos that led me to follow you around every session of that conference um, and to try to harass you um, because, you know, the whole reason I was there was to to explore this idea of sport and whether it was sort of being considered. So to have someone, you know, like you there at that conference talking about sport, I was like instantly, you know, sort of like, you know, this amazing feeling of like, well, yes, this is, this is a thing and this is something that we need to explore. Um, and so then after that conference, I don't know if you remember, but I, I actually remember I was in a, I was in the back of a cab in the States, I think, heading mm. home. And I sent you a message saying, look, I think we've got some money. Can we go to Cox's? Can you sort of facilitate that? Um, mm-hmm. And you just said, yep, sure. <laughs> and so we went. 
I think I think the the initial the initial response was actually that listen I've got some people that I can get you in contact with and 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 I think that I was already starting to do that but then because you know you know uh I guess I I felt that 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 was a part of my life that I'd put behind myself you know you know I have I have a young son and I wanted to more you know invest in you know, in his schooling and, and seeing him grow up in, you know, in Australia. And one of the main reasons as to why I came back was because of family reasons. And of course, because of the, the passing of my father, etc. So I thought that that, that world was sort of dead to me, I guess. Right. But then I thought, well, you know, it was an, in, you know, the, the Rohingya context was something that was extremely intimate and, and extremely deep for me that I spent, you know, three years of probably the, you know, I've often said amongst the best years of my life in working with the community there, working alongside the community and then trying to come up with outcomes in seemingly desperate and hopeless situations. And I'd never forgotten that. Right. So when, you know, when the, the crisis occurred in, you know, the, the latest crisis Mm -hmm. occurred in 2017 and and you sent me that, that email, I said, you know, why not, you know, why not re-engage in this and, and, uh, and, and I accompanied you, of course. Yeah, no, I'll never forget. I mean, a couple of moments. But one, the first time we sort of went into camp and the impact that that had. But two, I remember we were walking and I heard this, you know, this voice, someone yelled, Sean, mm. um, and came running up to you and giving you a hug. And I was like, you know, to me, I felt that we were in this, you know, incredible environment that I can't even describe and where you feel that actually, it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get perspective, you know, when it's, it's, there's that much poverty and, mm. and desolation as far as you can see. And, yes. and then to have someone yell your name, you know, Sean, and come running up to you and, and treat you like a, I mean, you could just see how grateful and excited people were to see you. But the fact that the chances to me, in my mind, being like the chance of someone that you would still know and bump into them yeah. in that context was, was, um, was amazing. I guess in some in some aspects, it's it's quite sad that you know that the people whom I knew from many years ago that they're still in that environment, they're still in that desperate situation. It means that in many ways the international community and others have, have failed the community, given that there's no solutions, right? But it was also very comforting to know that people people had remembered you from from those you know from those times, and I've often said that. You know the the thing that you leave from those environments, right? The le- thing that you leave from any, you know, any work environment, really, right? If you don't re- if you don't leave with relationships built with people, you leave with nothing, right? And and that that is probably the capital that I've I've taken from, you know, the the humanitarian context that I've worked in over the years is the relationships that you meet with refugees the, the relationships that you you make with your colleagues and and people in really dis, you know difficult situations and I've, I've often talked about this on the context and one of the things that i greatly miss in having come back to australia is sort of the the feeling of anonymity and 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 sometimes a sense of loneliness right in that people might not necessarily understand the context in which people work and are coming from and and feeling the same sense of connection with people in seemingly 
comfortable environments as opposed to places where there's desperation, where there's war, where there's suffering, but people have the capacity to build extremely intimate relationships. And, and that's one of the things that I really miss. And, you know, I, I, I remember that time that, that we went and, and, and I think maybe it was one of the first times you'd been in, in, in such a context. And I have a photo of you and I, I just, I just had to take it. And it was sort of, the, the realization of the enormity of seeing a million people in a refugee camp, right? Like where you have tents from as far as the eye can see and the smells and the sounds and, and the, the, the people in the sea of humanity and, and the wanting to do something in that particular environment, but just feeling helpless and, and not being able to support the people that you see in a really difficult environment and and I, I at least I, I don't know how you experienced it but I, I felt that there was it was almost like a, a light bulb moment and even even though it was unsaid at least it was something that I perceived and I could see and and dare I say that um that subsequent to to leaving that that mission or that that trip um, it's really galvanized and, you know, really galvanized something in you. And I think your work over the years has probably, you know, um, justified that, that assessment, I could say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that first trip with you, I mean, I couldn't have wanted to have done that with anyone else really, Sean. I mean, that was, but yeah, I think that moment that you're referring to, it did have a big shift in me. It, it, it changed it changed my life. It changed how I see everything. It changed how I view my own privilege, my sense of, you know, how we, we live. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it affected me, you know, significantly. If I think about what, of course, you know, I think I've shared this with you before, but that first, I think we were there for maybe three days in Cox's and then mm -hmm. we got back, we drove back to Cox's, flew out one of the after, straight in the afternoon. And then I was flying from Dhaka and I remember I had a shower at Dhaka airport and, and I just was there crying for about half an mm. hour in the airport because it was just mm. so overwhelming how mm. to see the scale. Like it's not just, you know, we've seen, you know, I've been fortunate to travel and, and I've, you know, so seen different degrees of, of, of poverty and, mm. and, and slums, but I've just never seen anything like the scale that was over there. And that's mm. what I think is most overwhelming about it. As you said, it's as far as your eye can see. Mm. Um, and it's hard not to be affected by yeah. that, I think, afterwards. So, yes. you know, you can take that and, and hopefully put it to good use and let it fuel a desire to try and do something or, yeah, I think that's one way of coping with it or, or knowing mm. it's there. Yeah. So establish that, that sense of purpose as a result of that experience and channeling that could be rage or channeling that, um, you know that 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 sadness into something that you feel that you can contribute and 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 how do you feel you've contributed since having that experience because i mean you know you you, you didn't talk about you know your previous experience coming into you know coming into that you know that that trip right where you know you're largely recognized as a pioneer in your field you know in in exercise physiology um but also in, 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 in looking at physical exercise um, within the context of, of mental health. So maybe you also might like to talk to that a little bit. Yeah, I think like 
you know, and, and we spoke so much about this, you know, on that trip, but I think I was always went into that first trip with the idea of wanting to see why this was a bad idea or why this wasn't, mm. you know, important or why it wasn't prioritised. And I remember very clearly when we drove in, um, you know, it was the start of the wet season, so it was raining quite heavily. And yeah. I specifically remember that as we sort of start driving into camp, you can just see there were, there were just, you know, pockets of kids playing football, you know, mm. and they were either using a ball or using a plastic bag that they'd tied together. Or um, So, yes, we were kind of primed to look for it, but that's, a, you know, still what you could see, like kids are going to be kids. Yes. And, you know, part of what I really got out the most out of that trip with you was our discussions at the airport mm. on the plane mm. around this stuff and, you know, some of the beautiful things that, that came up that came that you said, but, you know, one that I think we've used a lot that I just think sums it up perfectly, this idea that if you give a kid a ball, they're going to, kick it and look for a friend to kick it to yes. um yeah. you know i think that so beautifully captures the the essence and the power of of sport mm. so you know my background before this stuff was looking at, at exercise and, and ptsd so i mainly did a lot of work with veterans and emergency service workers yeah. um, and trying to look at the you know i guess the connection between the body and the mind um, and we know that people living with with mental illness or poor mental health are far more likely to experience poor physical health and they are related mm. um so it was sort of almost a natural progression, I guess, to then kind of think about these humanitarian contexts. But I think in, in those low resource environments, it's actually one of the it's one of the most powerful yet underutilized and undervalued strategies we have to, to improve mental health and mental well-being. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not. Uh, where did we where was that question? Where did you start? I think so if I just reflect on that first time that we we went and the people we spoke to, which again, wouldn't have happened without the, the um, immense, you know, the, the community connections that you had and the respect that the community has for you. Um, but, you know, do I think that I've made a, a significant contribution to that area? No, I don't. I think, you know, part of what my role has been has been hopefully trying to give a voice to people there and communicate those stories and their desire and their, uh, belief that sport is important mm. to a different audience and to, whether that's funding agencies or donors and trying to build an evidence base around that so that it is actually prioritized and it is viewed as something that's important i think we have a long way to go um but you know the the, the start is in there and the foundations are in place and you know that's largely true you know building off everything's just building on something that's been done prior and, and this is really building on the foundations that you that you have and those strong links you have with the community that we've able to 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 build on mm. i guess you know back to that discussion that we're having you know in relation to when you you know you give a kid a ball and then they're going to look for others to play with and i think that you know it's something that is so intrinsic in a lot of those in, i mean maybe the the world over and I, I believe that there's also evolutionary roots in terms of you know play and in terms of how we how we associate with 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 one another, not just in a competitive context, but just how we how we associate and 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 fun and things like that. And you know, one of the interesting things is that you know, you and I have travelled all around the world, and it's something you'll always see in you know, um, people engaged in sport um, um, and the, the the meaning that it provides. And I guess one of the things that 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 really impacted my life you know, growing up in Australia was seeing, um, was seeing at least with, 
football, right? And I talk a lot about football, but other sports are equally relevant as well, right? But at least with football, given that it's, a, you know, it's a global institution, it's a global sport, and dare I say, maybe there's reasons as to why that sport specifically has a global, a global impact, right? But at least from what I've, what I saw, it was around the asset-based community development, right? So it was communities that were establishing their own clubs, right? And I always saw it within the context of healing, right? And since I was three years old, I would accompany my father, who was a referee, right? And because at the time, a lot of the football clubs were based on ethnic, were, were established by ethnic communities, right? And how I always saw it was in the context of healing, right? So we have communities who, you know, um, because of war, right, because of displacement, come to Australia and in a new land feel, don't necessarily feel safe, right? They might not feel, you know, they might not speak the same language. They might not have the same culture as, main, as, as the mainstream. So initially they form a group amongst themselves whereby they can feel comfortable, right? And through that association, through that internal association, they build up a sense of confidence, right? And usually it's based on a common interest, which could be football, right? Or could be something, else, whatever, but I often saw it in football. And based around that safety, then they have the opportunities to then reach out to other communities and other mainstream institutions, right? And I often think that, you know, sometimes we don't, we can't see, um, we can't see the impact of something that didn't happen, right? If you know what I mean, right? So we can't be able to properly ascertain what would happen if refugee communities didn't have that in Australia, right? Because that impacted hundreds of thousands of people across the country, it gave people a sense of purpose, it gave people a sense of meaning, right? A place to communicate, a place to, you know, to get together, right? And to form those connections and then be able to form connections with other communities who they play against and who are involved in that institution. And I saw the same thing all over the world in these contexts that I was working with. So fundamentally, it was always about healing, right? And one of the frustrating things that I found, right, and I, I think you probably agree and i'm sorry if i'm talking too much no, no, i get good. passionate about this stuff right was that this was community initiated right he was using the community's resources right and and i felt that at least in terms of mental health and psychosocial support right surely funding bodies and, and others should invest more in terms of what communities and people are initiating themselves as opposed to coming up with something else elsewhere and then coming yeah. in and implementing that on their behalf. Surely the things that the, the, the community is already doing for their own healing, well, then you go and, and, and build that up, right? And maybe that's some of the same things that you've also encountered in the past and, and maybe you can talk to that yeah. a little bit too. Look. I mean, there's so much in that, but I think one of the things I'm really interested in your views on, I think we're changing roles here, but 
um, this idea of meaning and healing and also safety. But the idea of, uh, you know, it's something I struggled with for a long time was going, look, in these contexts where you've got such severe poverty, um, you know, deprivation, how can you argue that sport is important? You know, you come back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I think actually there is a case to challenge that partly. Um, you can provide people shelter. You can provide people, um, you know, with food, but without sort of meaning or purpose, mm. you know, there, there's a, you've got to ask the question, what, what, um, you know, what, what are people living for? And I think that that's a really important point. And I think what you're talking about there about sport, providing meaning, providing purpose, providing community mm-hmm. is actually really important and it's critical um, and it's too often overlooked. Yeah. Um, you know, do you remember that story in camp about those kids trading food vouchers for a soccer ball? Yeah. Um, you know, now that's not to say that sport is more important than food. Of course, that's ridiculous. But I think like that is so powerful and yeah. so important. Yeah. The fact that a young child is making that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, with, without a sense of meaning, without a sense of purpose, there really isn't too much hope. Right. And that is what people need. Right. Yeah. And the same thing goes for us in whatever context we live in, you know, and that was the reason as to why my father and others gravitated towards that. Right. And yeah. And that, that, that's always moved me and that, that, that always influenced my life subsequently, you know, as a, as a mental health professional and also as a, you know, a community development practitioner as well. Like those, those, um, you know, moments growing up, it, it had a huge impact. Um, I guess I also wanted to ask you that, you know, as an exercise physiologist, um, you know, many people might not perceive exercise physiology as, you know, um, as, as an intervention um, for survivors, you know, for survivors of torture and trauma, right? But I really would like to hear your point of view, having worked with, you know, many people over the years from those in the police force to veterans, you know, to now, you know, to, to pe- you know, people with a refugee experience. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, um, look, there's some, some fun, you know, some pivotal texts, I guess, you know, one of them is, is Bezel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And mm. this idea that, you know, trauma, you know, has its mark you know, on the body and physically, impacts the body as well and we know you know an example of that is the link between things like obesity diabetes cardiovascular disease with post-traumatic stress disorder you know they go hand in hand and they're they're strongly associated with each other and the question is you know so then other issues around those sort of modifiable lifestyle factors and Mm. and we're talking there about sleep we're talking physical activity um diet so nutrition and also smoking and substance use now that whole field of what's called now lifestyle psychiatry is is you know, we're seeing that we know that those factors are associated with physical health, but increasingly we've got evidence showing they're associated with mental health as well. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea about what comes first. Um, do people experience poor mental health and then those lifestyle factors start to change? Um, or do those lifestyle factors change and then it's associated with mental health? And, and that relationship is actually bi-directional. It goes both ways. What we do know is that if someone's living with poor mental health or experienced trauma um, mm-hmm. or living with PTSD, that those lifestyle factors, you know, are likely to change and, and people are at high risk of becoming sedentary. They're at high risk of, of the diet changing, um, you know, adversely. They're at high risk of, you know, experiencing poor sleep quality, smoking, 
alcohol, all those sorts of factors. And so that then raises the idea about are they targets for intervention? And if we intervene with someone's lifestyle, is that enough to, well, firstly, we know it can improve physical health, mm-hmm. but can it improve mental health, both in the short term and in the long term? Can it alter the trajectory of those illnesses itself? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got some really strong data showing that the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it's a replacement for existing mental health treatment. It's absolutely not, but it should be used in conjunction with and alongside. Um, you know, there's interesting data coming out from around the world in a, mm. a treatment study in Denmark that, that with trauma and torture survivors where there was no impact on, on uh, symptoms. Mm. When we actually look at the intervention there and we, we sort of tease that apart, the, the idea exercise isn't just exercise. We can't just say to someone, look, go and do some exercise and expect that that's going to change their behaviour. Mm. Um, there's a lot more to it. We need to actually support people and, and match the level of support that's needed um, to their requirements and, and that individual at the time. So I guess the, the evidence we have, although not specific with trauma and torture survivors, is that physical activity is an important part of treatment. It can go alongside existing strategies. Yeah. It can help to reduce symptoms. It can help to manage symptoms. It can help improve physical health. Um, that evidence is very strong. The, the question is how do we actually contextualise this to certain uh, environments? So, for example, low-resource environments to a refugee camp. Mm. Um, but what's super interesting is if we look at what the mental health teams are doing in these contexts, yeah. and this comes back to your point about doing what the community identifies with, mm. ultimately what we see is that a lot of what the mental health teams do is they organise sporting matches um, because it's kind of one of the simplest, easiest, most scalable things they can do in those environments. And if you yeah. think about there are other treatment options that we know just aren't going to work in a context where you have a really limited number of trained professionals and a huge overwhelming demand. Yes. Um, and I think the, the same can be said here in Australia mm. in certain regional and remote communities where we just yeah. don't have the level of infrastructure required. Mm. So I think the that's why I'm sort of, I get excited about this because I think there's so much potential mm. for, for sport and activity to actually, you know, if it's valued and if it's seen as a part of the mental health treatment options, yes. it's going to be resourced appropriately. At the moment, that's not the case. It's still mm. this idea that it's an added extra if you've got time, um, you know, if we've got nothing else to do. Mm. But that's actually, we need to change that. And one of the other things, and we've spoken a lot about this, is, is sort of access and equitable access. Yep. And the people in these settings that are likely to have access to sport are probably those that don't need it. I mean, it's probably the able-bodied young men mm. who are going to find a way to play anyway. Yes. Um, you know, whether it means, and we've, you know, both heard extreme examples of what young people will go to in order to, to play sport and participate in sport. Yeah. Um, but they aren't the ones that we probably should be, you know, prioritising to try and help mm. and support to participate. You know, it's other marginalised groups. If it's, you know, in some context, women, people mm. living with disabilities. Um, yeah. I think that's where we stand to make so many, you know, so much so many gains and so many benefits, not only for mental health, but also physical health and, and at a societal level as well, if we can actually help those people to find a way to engage. Yeah. So maybe looking at from a, you know, a gendered lens or, or, a, or, or as, as we say in the, you know, an AGD lens, um, what, what, what do you think are some of the barriers um, to say women's participation and, and other marginalized groups um, in, in those contexts that you've worked in? I think that there's there's a variety. So, you know, if we think about women, for example, one, a, a clear thing is access to women-friendly spaces where they can do this in, in privacy and behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one factor that we need to consider. I think two is also the, 
the cultural how, how we actually perceive exercise and activity and the word exercise and mm. you know it's often got these negative connotations associated with weight or associated with a certain aesthetic or look and that's a problem because that's actually yeah. not what it's about we mm. need to sort of reclaim that away from the aesthetic and away from the this is how i look to this is how i feel yeah um, and what's interesting when we talk to the you know the margis the, the spiritual leaders in, in the religious leaders in, in camp we talk about young girls participating in exercise and some of my experience has been that when we sort of ask them like is exercise or sport important they say well yeah absolutely for young for young men and if you sort of have that conversation and i did a few times where i was like well what about for young women um and it wasn't that they would outright say no it was just hadn't really been considered because they just accepted for a long time that that was what young boys did Mm. Uh, but when you sort of put it to them about this idea that it makes people feel better, it can help relieve stress or tension, mm. um, they would kind of, you know, the responses I had was like, yeah, well, that's, yeah. That makes sense. Sure, that yeah. makes sense. Um, mm. We just don't, we haven't considered it and we don't have a space for it. But if we mm. did, then yeah. sure. Mm. Um, and when we talk to the young girls, they absolutely want to participate. They want an opportunity mm. to. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a mismatch, a mismatch there between the sort of the, the, the desires the express needs of the community or what they're what they're saying they want versus what's provided and mm. i think we can well hopefully what i'm would like to do is to try and help shift that as best we can yeah great um you know i think that you know in, in many ways physical movement is you know is intrinsic to being human right and and also you know in relations to the the, the, the psychological needs for such and you know, you, you just mentioned that increasingly exercise and, and, and sport is being perceived as a, as a psychosocial tool, right? And it is being, you know, it's being articulated as such. And I think that that's, that's a really positive, really positive thing. Um, I guess looking, looking more at, say, a, a resettlement context or the con in, in which we live and work in now, which in in many ways is quite similar. Uh, sorry, it's quite different, but but also can be quite similar as well, right? And I guess um, you know you mentioned sedentary lifestyles, um, and you know that's obviously a, a huge issue, right? In terms of not just not just for health outcomes, but also psychological outcomes, and equally so for for children and young people. And I suppose this podcast focus on children and young people. Um, and I guess without the, a, a better phrase, um, what are some of the hints for healing, um, which practitioners, psychologists, social workers, um, teachers and, and, and families, I suppose, can, can focus on in relations to physical movement and, and exercise yeah. and, and maybe you also might want to sort of comment on um, looking at it from a, a COVID context where, you know, where we've become more sedentary during this COVID crazy year that we've been living in. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in that. For, firstly, you know, thinking about children and young people, some work that we're doing at the moment, which I'm really excited about, is looking at um, data around children exposed to adverse childhood events, mm. um, risk of mental illness later in life. And what we're seeing, you know, there's a couple of great studies showing this, that sport participation is a protective factor against mm -hmm. developing mental illness later in life. Mm 
Um, and I think that in itself is a strong enough rationale to think about young people, you know, in a resettlement context or young people particularly that at high risk of being exposed to adverse childhood events, um, sport can be protective against developing mental illness. So we need to consider that and think about that. Um, when we think about practical ways of engaging people, we need to think about the barriers and increasingly the physical activity world is acknowledging the sort of social determinants that are barriers to active participation. There's no point telling someone, hey, you've got to exercise 150 minutes a week if they're living in an environment that it's not safe to walk outside, there's no footpath and they can't afford shoes. Yeah. Um, there, there's no point in saying go and exercise 150 minutes. Mm. So I think there are those structural barriers there around inequality around you know socioeconomic disadvantage social capital if you think about needing child support in order for you know a parent to engage in activity there are all those factors that i think services could be actually considering and actually trying to help you know identify and break down some of those barriers to help people get active it's not as simple as just saying like i think what i'm saying is we need to take the onus away from the individual in part Mm. um actually there are certain people in certain situations where as much as they want to, they just can't because of these barriers. Um, so they're those sort of systemic structural barriers. At an individual level, what can practitioners do? I think the first thing is actually asking about sport and activity. Mm. Um, you know, if you imagine the, the cultural shift there and the perception of the, the, the person you're working with, yeah. if their health professional is asking about this, then immediately that provides a, a sense of, well, this must be important. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a really important thing, you know, in having these conversations around movement. You know, I think one of the other issues is, is acknowledging, and this comes back to that first point, that, that really exercise is, is in, you know, in a place like Australia, it's a privilege. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a privilege of, 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 of an elite sort of class that have the, the resources to do so and mm -hmm. to engage. Yes. Um, and that also means that certain exercise environments aren't welcoming for, for, for certain types of people. You know, if we think about um, stigma around people living with mental illness or stigma around, um, you know, particular, certain cultural groups, that, that can be an issue that, that we need to address. And I think, you know, your story around sport at the start is so pivotal to that, how it can actually bring communities together and, and be a, a space for healing and a space where, where people can have that shared identity. So I think it's really important that services and clinical services provide that support and actually invest in, in not only being aware about what are the local resources available, whether it is exercise, you know, sporting clubs, exercise organisations, you know, gyms that might offer subsidised memberships and actually create an environment that is welcoming mm. for, for a diverse group of people. Um, so that would be the, you know, for practitioners in particular, I would say, you know, ask the question, ask about sport, ask about activity, Mm. Um, and then try and think about what are those barriers and what are the resources that you have in your local community that you can actually tap into. And increasingly what we're also trying to do with the exercise physical activity world is actually upskill them so that they're confident and competent in not only working with people from a, with, with mental health issues, but also people from, from different, uh, different cultures as well. So they're you know, mm -hmm. in refugee context so that they're able to create that space, that, that safe welcoming. And as you put it, healing, space that people can come and, and move their body which you, you know you're absolutely right we know that you know everyone has the right to health and and actually moving our body is a is a critical fundamental part of health you know mm -hmm. and it's moving it appropriately for you so it's how do we create the space and, and the environment for people to do that mm. well, what is your what is your dream in this in this regards what, what would you like to see happen in the future I know it's a big question. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it before, you know, we've mentioned things like sports therapists and things like that, but you know, what, what would you like to see happen? I think 
what I guess if I sort of have conversations with people around what I do and I talk about, let's say, you know, sport and, you know, humanitarian context or whatever it is, and the kind of general reaction is like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But it's like, I haven't really thought about it, but it kind of makes sense. And, and I think the dream would be that actually it's the reaction was just like, yeah, okay, that, like, yes, it's accepted, you know? And I think just like we know, everyone accepts that exercising is good for our health you know everyone accepts that it's important to prevent cardiovascular disease and to help you know prevent and treat diabetes and mm. all that stuff um i guess the dream is that there's the same level of recognition and acceptance around mental health um and we're getting there you know people are increasingly talking about this and this idea that you know they're active because of how they feel not because of how they look I think that's the ultimate dream. Being more specific would be that people, you know, the, the mental health world um, that's working in, you know, regardless of context, it could be in, in private practice here in Sydney or it could be in a hospital or it could be in a camp setting, mm-hmm. um, is not only aware of, you know, the, the, that sort of evidence base but also practically in in how to actually apply that and how it can be used and that means that even at at an undergraduate postgraduate level the training courses are actually you know integrated so for example eps are learning about you know exercise physiologists physiotherapists are learning about mental health Mm. as standard part of their curriculum but likewise psychologists social workers um psychiatrists are learning about exercise and movement in the same way not to the same level of course but Mm. to the same the same extent yeah Um, because i think that just makes sense and a similar value in terms of its benefits, of course. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I guess because you, you've become increasingly involved in, you know, the global, in global advocacy towards, you know, mental health and psychosocial support. Um, you know, what, what do you think are, are some of the, the challenges? And I guess it's, it's a Burgundian field. It's a, it's a, it's a relatively a new field, you know, global mental health and, and, and global um, MHPSS is what we always say, you know, um, mental health and psychosocial support. But, you know, what do you think are some of the, um, you know, what are some of the, the possibilities perhaps? And, and but, but of course, you know, what, what are some of the challenges? I think, and this might be a whole other discussion, but I'd be very interested in your views on that term, global mental health. There's a lot of criticism of that as a, <laughs> yeah, sure. as a, as a, as a field. And I think, you know, I've learned so much from you about you know, prioritising the, community and thinking about actually this is it's not about us and and thinking about how do you our role you know it's a very privileged role but how do we use that for good and and actually amplifying the voice of people you know who are living in these experiences um so i think that whole idea of global mental health i mean it's a strange concept which i'm don't Mm. have my head around really but where do i the, the question was where do i see like the the potential opportunities and Mm, yeah i I think you know what i see the sport it's it's completely transcultural it's like a universal language Mm. um so i think that's something we can harness communities as you said you know all the communities you've been around the world that they're going to find a way to to Mm. play some sort of sport and movement so i think there's there's increasing recognition which i'm really excited about within the mental the mhbss sort of um sector that that Mm. this is important you know so what i'd love to see is probably some training around that so that practitioners can own this i mean communities what's interesting is i mean we've spoke about this again but they don't need us to come along and say hey play sport 
because mm-hmm. um, they're doing it. They're, they're going to be, you know, whether it's the walking groups that we heard about in Cox's Bazaar among yes. the older women or whether it's the young boys playing soccer like that, they, they, they know what they want to do. I think mm-hmm. our job is to actually, with the evidence base, ensure that the resources meet the need and the demands from the community. At the moment, I would say that's not the case because of how um, the recognition or the, and, and the undervaluing of this as a strategy. Mm. Um, and, and that, I think, also dates back to the sort of separation between mind and body that we have in our approach to health more broadly, you know, and this sort of disconnect. But actually, so why would a mental health professional worry about sport? That's not their job. Mm. Um, but actually, it can be and it, and it should be as well. No, that's great. I, I really, you know, really appreciate you saying that. And um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Is is there anything else you'd like to? Is there anything else you'd like to mention? You know, I have a great respect for you, and and you know your, you know your your you know your expertise and your you know the the experience you've had before. Um, but yeah, like where where can people find you if 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 they're interested in in finding more information about some of the work that you're doing and some of the work in general in this space. Yeah. I mean, anywhere, email, Twitter or social media, I mean, please get in touch. I think, uh, you know, I mean, Sean, the the impact that you've had on on me has been enormous. And honestly, I can't stress it enough. And and also when I came back, you know, I had to come back from, from Cox's Bazaar during, because of COVID and that was a really difficult time for me, but you were um, probably the, you know, one of very few people here in Australia that I could actually talk to about that experience because you had been through it um, multiple times. And so, you know, I really, really appreciate that. Um, And knowing that you're there in the background has been, you know, incredibly um, comforting for me and also to guide along this journey. I'm not a, a mental health professional by background you know I'm very much a I feel like a, a personal yeah, trainer with an identity <laughs> crisis and um, that's how I would describe it at the moment so you know I think very humble you man and your guidance around this no but it's been you know and I think the future is exciting and things like the cartoons that we were able to make together mm. you know, in Rohingya language promoting this this idea and I think the opportunities are actually really exciting yeah. um, going forward hopefully yeah no, it's great. It's great, Simon. Thanks so much for this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank Until you. Until next time, my man. All right. Take care. Bye. Hello, I, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in today. And, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the feedback we have received thus far from, in fact, from people across the world. Many people engaged in this field. And, you know, let's be honest, it's an honor to stand alongside survivors. And perhaps in many ways, you know, we can receive more than what we give in the process, you know, as educators, mental health practitioners, or in whatever capacity. You know, if you'd like, please comment um, or rate on whatever podcast app you may be using. Um, yet that's completely up to you. Just thanks again for taking the time to listen. And until next time, thank you. Thank you.